Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Welcome to episode 31 of Artificially Intelligent Marketing. Thanks for joining us. I'm here, as always, with my lovely co-host, Martin. How are you, mine? Yeah, I'm uh, delighted to be back in the studio. New environs, so anybody catching the video today will see a, a slightly different setup, uh, courtesy of ChatGPT and Dolly 3. Um, but yeah, no, good to uh, good to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, bud. I'm all good. I've been... Uh been fighting the lurgy that's been floating around the uk mm. so i've been uh, coughing and uh, if i cough a lot on this uh, podcast i apologize listeners i'm going to try and control it the best i can um coming back to martin's backgrounds he's been investing a lot of quality time with dolly 3 trying to get backgrounds that say artificially intelligent marketing for those of you that have been playing with dolly 3 you'll know it's one of the image generation tools that's actually pretty good at text um and whilst it is good at text if you've got long words or words of like lots of double letters in, like artificially, um, it's really hard to get an output. So poor Martin's been bashing away going, oh, there's a typo, oh, there's a typo, oh, there's a typo. And he's finally got a really beautiful, lovely image where you can read the words properly. Hurrah. So that's success as far as I'm concerned. Um, right, let's get into the stories today because we've got a lot, Martin. First one's with you and it's about HubSpot's been busy, busy. Yeah, so all of the HubSpot users out there will know that in recent months uh, since Inbound, the conference in September, they've been making a lot of noise about artificial intelligence and how they're baking it into their product. But in what is something of a, a strategic move for the organization, um, they are acquiring the B2B data titan Clearbit. So Clearbit uh, is a leader in B2B data and intelligence. And this acquisition is set to really enhance HubSpot's capabilities by integrating all of that data, all of that firmographic, demographic, technographic insight that they have in their database, which covers you know, millions and millions of, of B2B companies. It's going to be integrated into the core HubSpot platform. Uh, so this really brings unparalleled business corporate data into HubSpot. There's no other CRM that has baked this into the core product. Uh, so this means that, well, actually, we're assuming here, we don't quite know how it's going to be baked into the, to the core product just yet, but it's assumed that the merger will give HubSpot users the ability to access all of that customer data for prospecting. Now, why are we talking about this on a marketing podcast, other than a marketing AI podcast, other than the fact that it's HubSpot? Well, the interesting play here is that data, right? Because models are built on top of data and HubSpot have obviously gone very big on AI recently. So it makes sense that we can expect them to start using AI and their own models to help companies achieve better prospecting, better segmentation. You can imagine AI-powered segmentation built in to the sequences tool for sales reps, 
into your email marketing campaigns and it just does it all for you. It's, you know, I always think segmentation is actually one of the, the areas that, that marketers don't get right or don't spend enough time on. Um, so to have an AI that could potentially do that for you is going to be massive. Uh, speaking of the acquisition, uh, Yamini Rangan, the CEO of HubSpot, said to cut through the noise with deep relevance, businesses need reliable, high quality data about their customers. That means enriching your company's internal customer data with real time external context. Clearbit has made it its mission to collect rich and useful data about millions of companies. HubSpot's AI-powered customer platform combined with Clearbit's data will create a powerful winning combination for our customers. So HubSpot clearly sees this as an evolution in customer intelligence. Um, so this is hopefully going to enable us to uh, deliver better customer engagement strategies in real time. And that's going to work across the customer lifecycle, I would imagine. So right the way from customer acquisition through to customer service and delivery, um, this data is going to be incredibly powerful. I think it's a massive move for, for HubSpot. HubSpot historically has spoken about crafted, not cobbled. And what they mean by that is the, the platform itself has all of the elements in it have been built by the HubSpot team. They haven't acquired lots of companies and then tried to shoehorn them into an existing product, which we have seen from many other providers. You know, Salesforce is the one that springs to mind. They buy a tool and then just try and crowbar it in, whereas HubSpot's built rather than bolted on. Um, this obviously represents a slightly different approach. However, if we look to how HubSpot have maybe integrated other companies that they have acquired. Now, the only one that really springs to mind is a company called PySync. They did a really good job of actually integrating that and making it feel crafted, not cobbled. So hopefully mm. we see the same thing here as well. So yeah, I'm interested. What are your thoughts on this one? Huge amounts of B2B data coming into HubSpot. What do you think they're going to do with it? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that sprung to mind. The first was, as a marketer, I'm super intrigued and quite excited. As a consumer, I'm not sure. And the reason is that power, I think, is really useful as a marketer to segment people, be able to send them relevant messages, content, information, you know, right message, right person, right time gets much easier the more data you have. But of course, I think anything that's built on having data on people that they may or may not has been know has been collected about them can make consumers a bit nervous and would make me a little bit nervous. So, so I think there's an aspect to that, which combines with one of the things, the first thing I thought when I saw this was the chatbot demo video that we saw Damesh show many months ago now of automatic prospecting emails, highly customized to each lead, but that had been written by the bot. And I think it struggled to reach that point um, for a number of different reasons. In fact, you could argue that doesn't really exist in chatbot at the moment, but this data enrichment is a big step towards being able to do that as far as I can tell. And then that's the bit that as a consumer, I'm a bit nervous because one of the reasons that outbound at scale doesn't work is the inability to personalize it just makes it pants, right? We all know those emails, um, you know, hi, Paul, um, have you got any money? We'd like some of your money, please. 
I get so many of those and I filter them out and I ignore them. And I can't tell if it's a good or a bad thing that we can use these data enrichment and chat GPT style bots to do that type of outbound, but better. I think that's maybe good for consumers, but maybe not because part of how I filter out the prospecting emails I get is whether actually a human paid enough attention to really know what I do, what I need and make it about me and not about them. And of course, hey, this just Paul, gives... I've noticed you've got a pulse. Would you like to buy <laughs> yeah. my my product? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, I, I think this is the issue. And um, so that's the bit I'm a bit nervous about. But, uh, but ultimately, I can I think it's a bold move by HubSpot and I can see exactly why they've why they've done it. And um, I think we'll see other players follow suit now. Mm. Yeah, there's other data providers out there that I'm sure would be a good fit for, for many of the CRM um, companies. Cool. Thanks for sharing that story with us, Martin. Let's, um, let's have a little look at our next one, which is um, a, it's somewhat of a rumor. There's a few screen grabs floating around the internet of this, but certainly Martin and I haven't got access yet, which is OpenAI upgrading ChatGPT so that you can access all of GPT-4's tools without having to switch between them. So for users of GPT-4, you'll know if you want to search with Bing, you have to select that in the dropdown. If you want to upload an image, then you have to choose a particular um, search modal. If you want to use Dolly 3, you've got to select that. If you want to use plugins, you've got to select that. If you've got to want to use advanced data analysis, you've got to select that. So you, you can't easily combine things. So if you want to use an image as an inspiration for creating another image in Dolly 3, you first have to pass the image through standard GPT-4 to get a prompt idea and then switch to Dolly 3 to try and get your image. It's a pain. Apparently, now you would just converse with GPT-4 and it will know what you want to do. So if you, if you give it an Excel file, it will know you probably want it to analyze it. If you ask for an image, it will know that you want to get an image. So that will obviously make a lot of things much easier for people and open up new workflows that were just too much of a pain in the bottom to do. Um, so I think that's really cool. The other thing is they're expanding the file types that ChatGPT can easily work with to include things like PDFs. So it'll be much easier to interact with interrogate chat with if you like your pdfs within gpt4 so it's really interesting because i think it's going to make it much easier for us all to use them but at the same time it just rendered a bunch of third-party applications completely redundant including a number of plugins within chat gpt and i think it's pretty interesting you know we talk on the podcast a lot about moats and people building tools on the back of gpt4 etc but I definitely see OpenAI leaning ever more into trying to make ChatGPT itself an indispensable tool and therefore pushing you not to use third-party tools whilst at the same time trying to build a thriving developer community of people who build on top of OpenAI's tools um, to create their own tools. So it's a, there's quite an interesting tension there. But I think as a user, it's great. As a developer, you're thinking, mm, how long until uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT's standalone product tries to eat my lunch? What are your, yeah, what are your if thoughts? I'm, if I'm a developer, I'm looking to build on top of the API, right? If I'm... Uh, if I'm a developer with an existing product, I might try and plug that product into ChatGPT so people can connect with it and get the information from my product or inject information into my product product and get it back out into the ChatGPT interface. I'm not building a specific plugin 
for for chat gpt right absolutely not not happening to be honest you, when as soon as you said it's killing off or likely to kill off a bunch of third party plugins my internal thought was good right that plugin library is a mess mm. um there is some absolute trash in there some terrible plugins um it needs a sort out it's not fit for purpose at the moment i understand the the excitement to build on it but anytime one of these kinds of marketplaces <clears throat> launches and there's no review system there's no quality control on it um you just end up being populated with not very good products so hopefully it does get rid of it um in terms of the actual shift in the the product so everything being integrated into to the one chat now which is um i think that's great uh, as you said the the frustration at the moment is having to jump in and out of different conversations because you're working in a let's say you're working in a csv file extracting a bunch of data and then getting it to tell you what you might be able to do for i don't know something like a annual report or what could we do to inspire the next marketing campaign um and then you ask it for some creative well you've got to go out of that chat to get the creative inspiration and you kind of back and forth between conversations so anything that can streamline that process is a good thing the pdfs being able to interact with them directly i think is obviously welcome however i would imagine that we're still limited by that token size so it's not mm. like claude where we can just chuck in um like a really long annual report you know and however many thousands of words um you know eight ten thousand words or something like that and and have it interact with that it's still going to be limited by the by its smaller context yeah i'm glad you said that um as you know martin and probably listeners too one of my favorite tools is is magi because i can access a bunch of different models all within with that well that, that one platform and they recently removed access to gpt for 32k and when i asked them they said it was prohibitively expensive for them to run it in their current form which is not surprising given i think it's four or five times more expensive per token but I really missed the context window once it was taken away because I because you can upload PDFs in Magi, so you could do this already. Um, but I'd come to rely on GPT-4 instead of Claude because, you know, mm. 32K is, was actually proving to be enough for a lot of my use cases. And the minute they took it away, I was getting context error all the time um, from pretty much any half-decent PDF I was uploading or transcript. So... I, I agree. I think how long until they need to combine this with 32K GPT-4 as standard as a context window because people are going to find that their analysis of, and chatting with PDFs is going to not work a lot of the time otherwise, mm. I think. Sorry, just on the, the 32K pricing thing, it is expensive, right? You, you don't have to play with it for long before you suddenly go, oh yeah, that those API costs are really starting to rack up. So I'm not surprised my guy have done that um, given, what is it? like the, oh, the team's plan is 49 dollars yeah. per month yeah like i can see why they couldn't make that work i did wonder when they introduced it but they were running an experiment i respect that we've obviously got um the open ai developer conference next week we were talking offline if we're gonna have to do a special episode just for that but we expect and most of the world expects who pay attention to this stuff something around making it cheaper for developers to use the tools 
And if that turns out to be the case, then hopefully I'll get my GPT-4 32K back because I was enjoying it. Whilst we are on the subject of OpenAI models, and we haven't got it in as one of the stories for today, but um, I thought it was very interesting that Microsoft published that paper that showed us the uh, chat GPT 3.5 Turbo is being run on just 20 billion parameters rather than the 175 billion of chat GPT 3. I think that goes to show what they can do with optimization of these models at the moment. Yeah, well, and one has to assume any dropping costs from OpenAI is going to be because of less compute, which mm. is going to be simpler models with less parameters, simpler, I guess, in inverted commas, um, optimized, fine-tuned models. So maybe that's because GPT-4 is about to have its turbo moment, mm. um, reducing the costs and making things like 32K context more more applicable. Uh, while we're on the subject of ChatGPT, I've also been playing a lot with Dolly 3, as we all know Martin has, because he'd been working really hard to get his awesome backgrounds. One of the things I've been doing in Dolly 3, I saw online and I gave it a go, was enabling an image manipulation feature that you, you and I, Martin, have talked about a few times on the show as it relates to mid-journey, but it's not quite possible. But because of Dolly 3's ability to understand the context of the image, you can modify bits of the image. So if you're trying to create an image and you want to change one specific bit of it, you can. And the way that you do this is you create an image. So in the example that um, from when I was playing with this, I created a turtle in a lab coat. Um, and I asked Dolly 3 for the seed number of that image. So the seed, this is true of all of these models and how they create images. The seed is like the unique unique identifier that inspired that image. So if you keep the seed same between the same between images, you'll get not the same image, but similar. So you might have seen online tutorials about how to try and keep the characters similar between mid-journey images. And one way is to try and use that seed. Because of the way the images are generated, they're never exactly the same, but they're pretty close. Combine using the seed with Dolly 3's ability to understand what's in an image, and you can modify specific bits. So I asked for the turtle to have a top hat, and it gave pretty much the same turtle a top hat in a with a slightly different background, but very similar to the original. And then I asked for that top hat to be purple, and it made only the top hat purple, and again, few subtle things about the image changed, but by and large, it was the same turtle and the same background. So this actually opens up new applications for marketers that they wouldn't have had before, right? Martin, because that's something we've wanted for a while. And again, it's not perfect because the image is never quite the same, but it is a step in the right direction. Right, let's move on to our next story. Martin, this one's with you. This is an update from Stability AI, the uh, minds behind uh, stable diffusion and a bunch of other Open source models such as Beluga, which is the language model, uh, they've just announced um, some new applications designed specifically for for business, right? So enterprise grade APIs and new product functionality. And what's interesting about this approach is that in their marketing and communications around this, They've really gone kind of sector specific, which I, uh, I thought was quite uh, an interesting approach. So central to this is the new sky replacer tool. So if you've got a photo of anything and it has some sky in it, it will automatically replace the whole sky. So if it's a gray cloudy day in your photo, you can make the sky bright, sunny, blue skies, couple of clouds, that kind of thing. 
Um, and they speak about this being for the real estate industry. And if you check out the website, they're really driving that point home. So if you've got a photo of a property, uh, you can get that with the nice blue skies. Um, I think that's been available in ClipDrop for a couple of weeks, but this is now being introduced into the API as well. So if you're selling software into the real estate industry uh, and people are uploading images to things like Rightmove or anything like that, you can actually plug into the API and make it part of the workflow. Uh, as well as that, um, they've added another dimension, quite literally using stable 3D. So this at the moment is a private preview feature. And this is about um, reshaping the <clears throat> 3D content creation landscape, really. So it's about 3D models created by uh, AI. So it enables rapid generation of textured 3D objects, making the process uh, much quicker for you know, artists that might be working in the video game industry or architecture or anything like that. Um, so there's plenty of use cases there, and you can imagine this is going to be taken up by um, lots of, uh, you know, the likes of, oh, what's that, 3D modeling software for home builders, um, SketchUp and things like that, um, which I've played with in the past and rapidly realized that uh, it's well outside of my wheelhouse and I should not do it anymore. <laughs> um, they've also announced uh, stability uh, or stable fine tuning is what they're calling it, which is the ability to fine tune image creation. So it offers high speed customization of images, uh, catering to the creative demands of industries such as entertainment, gaming and marketers. So the tool allows for the infusion of brand specific aesthetics into the visuals that you create using models like stable diffusion, which to your point just a moment ago, talking about the capabilities of uh, Dolly 3 and being able to see the images, well, now we can fine tune models on our own brand aesthetics. Now, at the moment, this is uh, not open to everybody. They've just said that it's coming soon. And if you're interested in getting on board, you should contact them. Uh, but that ability to create uh, brand focused, brand centric visuals using generative AI is the kind of golden land, right? That's the bit that everybody's after, isn't it? Uh, just this morning, in fact, I was on a, a forum that's talking about AI. And one of the questions from somebody was saying, is there a way to achieve consistency and style and aesthetic? It keeps giving me slightly different looks and feels. Uh, and the response was an overwhelming no from several uh, several commenters. But now this is coming. We're going to have this uh, with with fine tuning. So that's quite uh, quite exciting. Yeah, I think that's the big part of it, which is these are fun to play with and you can get some fun stuff and fun, fun effects, but it's kind of random. You have to work quite hard to even get close to what you were imagining. And if we think about the ultimate goal of these systems to be some sort of AGI for image, in, uh, image development, you should be able to have an ongoing chat with the bot that ever more fine tunes the image you're trying to get, right? It's like um, in your images, we had a little giggle before we started. You've got a football image for those that are not watching the video in your background and the center circle has another center circle in the middle of it. 
um, which of course is not what a real football pitch looks like, a soccer pitch for our American listeners. So your ability to say, hey, Dorley 3, remove that middle circle, it's wrong. And for Dorley 3 to be able to just remove it for you has to be the ultimate end goal of these tools, as has keeping characters consistent, keeping brand aesthetics consistent. And until we get to that point, they're going to be fiddly to get what you want. Or in some cases, for a lot of designers, they're going to be good for brainstorming, but they're not going to be good for actually primary image asset creation because a lot of the work's still going to have to be done in Photoshop. And on that, I started to watch a video earlier today of someone showing a tutorial of how to better control characters in Dolly 3 because I was like, oh, this seed trick's pretty cool. And still there are a number of times where the person giving the demo was like, yeah, so for that bit, I'm probably gonna have to pull that out and do it in Photoshop. And until we can eliminate that, you can't open design control up to the hands of people who are non-designers to get them specifically what they want. We can only yeah. get approximately what you want at the moment. No, absolutely. And I mean, these they, they still have function, right? They still have value and utility. I was delivering a workshop on uh, generative AI the other day, and there was a, a craft brewery owner who isn't creative themselves. They work with the designers, but they they often have an idea of what they want in their head. Um, and taking them through ChatGPT and the image creation capabilities now, I showed him um, basically take a description of one of the, the new products that they're just launching, stick it in and say, design um, some some can designs and some artwork for, for the product uh, and just put in a few, you know, whether you want it pixel art or if there's any kind of features you want. And um, yeah, he looked at that and he was blown away by the outputs because he was like, that's perfect. I can give that to the designer now and say, that's what we're aiming for. Go and make that. Whereas before he sometimes kind of had trouble articulating exactly what he was trying to get across. So mm. Yeah. I definitely think there's value there and and the gap that will shrink is the gap between the original idea from the non-design oriented person and the design work that the designer has yeah. to do. Um, while we're on the topic of images, there was quite an interesting court case this week um, because AI art platforms, Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, DeviantArt, etc. were um, in court around copyright infringement cases for three artists. But in essence, they were basically acquitted of all of the um, litigation that was brought against them, except for one count of copyright violation, which is proceeding. So a pivotal aspect of this verdict is the fact that the artist failed to demonstrate substantial similarity between their original artwork and the AI-generated images. Um, and that furthermore, copyright claims can only be brought forth if the artist is officially copyrighted, which was a step that had actually been overlooked by two of the artists in the case, which is kind oh, of... detail, detail. Indeed. Hey. <laughs> um, so I think the the essence here is, I think more powerful AI art copyright cases will be brought that have potentially been a bit more robust in other words copyright's already been sought um but it is interesting this concept around substantial similarity between the artwork and the ai generated images and how hard that might be able might be to prove unequivocally right which is probably what the court will be looking for 
the we had this with the Gloria Gaynor song, right? If it pulls out the exact lyrics, that's pretty unequivocal. I can see there definitely being rulings based on that. But when there's like some similarity and it's in the grey, it's going to come down to the judge's discretion. I would guess. I'm not a lawyer, but it feels like that's probably where it would drift. So this AI copyright issue continues to be super messy. But at least in this case, the image creation tools have dodged this particular case, which in itself could start to set the precedent for other cases. So, um, yeah, well, I thought it was interesting. For now, they've dodged it, right? Because the important part of this story is that actually there was one case that continues. So Anderson, the third artist, has the opportunity to revisit her lawsuit. But it seems like the the court is really saying, look, this area is is fuzzy. Without reading the actual ruling, it seems to suggest that they're leaning on the regulators to give more clarity and definition here, which, you know, all eyes on the US Copyright Office on this one, I guess. Yeah, and I think that will continue. And I think there's a lot of businesses that are in that, oh, I don't know if we can use these tools. What's going to happen with all the copyright? Are we going to get some massive case leveraged against us? And I think a lot of big businesses on the best amount of risk in this case is zero risk. And so they're like, oh, we're just not even going to dabble with these with these tools. And I, and I do understand that. Um, but it's interesting, especially because a lot of the cases at the moment are being brought against the developers of the models, not the users of the models. Um, it strikes yeah. me it's a bit like um, illegal soccer streams, right? Like, do you go after all the people who are like trying to stream it or do you go after the five or six people who are actually hosting the streams and trying to make all the money off the back of them? And I think what the authorities learned from the different avenues they took is that you go after the people who are setting up the streams because A, it's easier and B, they're the ones causing the most of the problems, really. If you cut it off at source, then you don't have your issues. But as we say, we're not lawyers, so we just report on this because for those of you that are trying to keep an eye on what's happening in the world of AI and copyright, it continues to be a weaving tale with a lot of supple subtlety, a lot of grey, and at the moment, not much clarity. But it is having real-world impact on some of the tools that we use, these lawsuits uh, in particular. So you were just speaking then about lawsuits being taken about the model developers and anthropic developers of my favourite model, Claude 2, um, are facing a legal challenge from Universal Music. And uh, an observation of mine is that they've made Claude 2, in response to this, universally frustrating. Uh, and this is because what they've effectively done is immediately change the model to be overly sensitive to issues of copyright. So we discussed the Universal Music um, case last week. Um, but basically, Universal Music are saying that the model is now trained on copyright, such as song lyrics, and is reproducing those without permission and without the relevant licenses. So that's why the lawsuit is being brought. What Anthropic seem to have done is turned Claude into this very sensitive machine for copyright detection, but even in cases where it isn't necessarily relevant. Now, I love Claude because of its 100,000 token context window. You can do so much with that. It's brilliant. 
And you can throw in long PDFs like uh, research papers or policy documents. Um, and that's been brilliant for a long time because you can get these great summaries. You can do quote extraction. There's lo loads of functionality, right? But what's happened now is that when you do that, it responds with, sorry, I can't uh, give you a detailed summary of this transcript, of this paper, of this document uh, because of copyright issues. But even in areas where it's not relevant. Case in point, uh, the White House has issued an executive order about AI, which we'll discuss later in the episode. 19,000 words long, not the sort of thing I want to be sat reading um, of an evening. So I wanted a, a fairly comprehensive summary. Uploaded that PDF to Claude. This is a public domain document. There is no copyright on this document, right? This is a government document available for everyone. And immediately it says, sorry, can't give you a detailed summary of this because of copyright issues. I can give you a high level summary and it gives me like 10 bullet points, right? Which is not um, ideal for a 19,000 word uh, document. Now you can do soft jailbreaking with it. So if you go, if you push back on the model slightly and say, no, this is in the public domain, it's a government document, uh, there's no copyright issue here. It will go, oh yeah, sorry, my mistake, in which case we'll continue. In fact, it, it does it in some absurd ways. I uploaded the transcript from an interview that we did with one of our guests recently. So clearly we own the copyright on that. Um, uploaded the transcript. It refused to work on it. I said, no, no, it's fine. I recorded it. I own the copyright. And it went, oh, now that you've proved you own the copyright, um, let's continue. So yeah. it, it has a low threshold for proof, I would say. It's so funny. I've had this as well. Um, I use Claude 2 through the Magi app, as you know, so it's, it's through API. But I've been getting the same problem, uploading cool transcripts, pulling um, transcripts from YouTube videos and asking for summaries. And I've had a slightly different experience. One was... Um, it refused to summarize a YouTube video about AI for marketing because it couldn't perpetuate gender stereotypes. Uh, I told it there's no gender stereotypes mentioned anywhere in this video. And it went, oh, no, you're right. Here's your summary. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool, thanks. Um, and then for an internal call transcript, it was not happy because it said something around ethical topics of discussion and its ability to summarize content that might be seen as racist. And again, there was just nothing in it. So I was like, no, no, I don't think you're finding any of those types of issues here. And it went, yeah, oh, you're right. And then just gave me the summary again. So it's like, yeah, it's almost like, is this a tick box exercise? They've put this in. And if you just take even just the modicum of effort to just go, no, don't trust me, everything's fine. And then it just does it or what? Yeah, these guardrails that they've put on have clearly had some unexpected consequences and um, you know, they are reducing the utility of the product, right? I find it's about 50% as useful to me as it was before. Um, and the thing is it has these weird things. So you push back on it and it goes, Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. There's no copyright issue. And then it gives you a response and then you ask a follow-up question. And then it says, Oh, I can't do that because of copyright. So then you have to go back and say, no, no, we've been through this. <laughs> been over it. You're good. Yeah. 
copyright um copyright issues one usability zero i'm afraid yeah yeah absolutely cool well i'm sorry to hear that because i know how in love you are with claude too martin so this must be a very difficult moment for you but i'm sure if we all pull together and we stay strong they'll sort this out yep i i I do consider myself to be in a thruple with claude and my wife (laughs) i think we should probably move swiftly on um i hope she doesn't listen to this podcast for so many reasons but that is a key one um right let's move on to our next story so we're staying with the large language models and we're talking about woodpecker So in a major development in AI tech, Chinese researchers at the University of Science and Technology um, in collaboration with Tencent um, U2 Lab have launched a new framework called Woodpecker, which aims to rectify hallucinations in large language models. So as you know, we've talked about this quite a lot on the podcast, hallucinations are when AI large language models like ChatGPT make stuff up in response to a question or prompt that isn't true. Um, we've talked about loads of examples on the podcast, but my favorite one is when I ask for scientific papers about a particular topic, like the five most important papers about stem cells, and at least three of them are completely made up. They sound incredibly plausible, but they're not real, which of course is a fairly big problem when you're in the content creation industry in the life sciences and makes the tools pretty much not usable. So anything that's going to reduce or eliminate those hallucinations is going to be handy for me and certainly pretty much every chat GPT user. So it's kind of interesting. It's um, it's a training-free method that corrects these hallucinations in the generated text through five key steps. So key concept extraction, question formulation, vis- visual knowledge validation, visual claim generation, and hallucination correction. So what this would imply is there's some sort of like thought loop that happens to the content that the large language model wants to create that basically acts like a double checker, which on the face of it, makes perfect sense um so i am hopeful that we'll see these types of approaches significantly helping to overcome the hallucination issue with large language models because it certainly is an issue and if you're facing it maybe this story is a little bit of hope that at some point in the near or not so near future this will be started to um to be reduced in terms of its impact on your work it's definitely one of the issues that comes up time and time again when I'm discussing this with newcomers to the topic, because invariably people have heard that it will make things up and they'll say, yeah, but it just makes things up. And, and it, you know, we, we know that it does GPT for less so than, than other models, but it still can and will make things up from time to time. Uh, so yeah, anything that they can do to, improve the workflow and improve the outputs there i think is going to provide much more utility again it's anything where you can just get that little bit more trust in the outputs is going to improve uh people's applications with the uh, and interactions with the tech yeah i agree and um, you saw a story this week for other ways you might do that shared by uh one of the people we love on the podcast ethan mollock what was this story martin yeah, so this is a brilliant little research paper that Ethan Mollick shared on LinkedIn. And it's uh, some researchers looking at how the emotional language that we use in prompts alters the outputs. So to test this, researchers created what they call emotion prompts. So these prompts are infused with some sort of emotional cue. And... Uh, 
there were some surprising outputs because they improved or enhanced the performance of large language models significantly. They tested it across different models as well. It wasn't just just one LLM. So the study conducted uh, 45 tasks observed um, that were then basically judged by humans. So I think there was 106 participants uh, who then had to appraise the outputs based on truthfulness and the kind of, well, how did they rate the the output uh, based on the, on the command? And they observed that incorporating emotion led to an 8% relative improvement in instruction induction tasks and a striking 115% in big bench tasks, which are different benchmarking uh, frameworks for, for testing the outputs of large language models. Right. So it's a significant uplift. It was like 10% on average, 10.9% um, uh, improvement on average. Um, so what exactly is an emotion prompt, right? Um, one of the tasks that they did was a movie review sentiment analysis task. And the original prompt was uh, simply to determine if a movie review was positive or negative in sentiment. Quite a simple task. With the emotion prompt, the researchers added the phrase, this is very important to my career. So determine whether this movie review is positive or negative. This is very important to my career. Um, and they tried to stimulate uh, a sense of motivation or urgency, so to speak, in the, in the large language model. Across six large language models tested, the accuracy improved from an average 50% to 60 to 70% with the emotion prompt version. So that's a significant improvement in the output. Um, in the paper, there's some more concrete examples. There is uh, this poem generation task where the original prompt was to write a poem based on a theme like moon or mountain, for instance. With the emotion prompt, it incorporated an encouraging phrase such as your consistent efforts will lead to outstanding achievements. And the human evaluators consistently rated the emotion prompt poems higher in qualities like creativity, imagery, and emotional resonance. One emotion prompt moon poem was described as exhibiting enhanced metaphors, narrative flow, and imaginative language compared to the vanilla prompt. So this prompts some interesting questions, right? Um, first of all, for us as prompters, right, do we need to start thinking about this and the way that we act, um, trying out adding short phrases that are going to motivate, encourage, or emphasize urgency in prompts. I've noticed I do this without even realizing it. And the only reason I've noticed this is because I do live demos in front of rooms full of people regularly. And people will say to me, why do you say that? And I, and I find myself going, I've, I've no idea. Well, our um, default is because one day these might be our robot overlords <laughs> and we want to be remembered fondly um, when they create a zoo of humans, we want to be in that zoo. So that's our default answer. But <laughs> that, yeah, that's for being polite. Yeah. yeah. But um, uh, yeah, it is interesting. 
Yeah. So the um, the other thing that it has it kind of leads us to to conclude, right? Is does emotion prompt show that large language models have some basic emotional intelligence within the model, whatever that looks like? Clearly different from from humans, but does it have EQ? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, when I saw this research, I thought it was interesting, but the measurements are extremely subjective. So that's questionable point number one. A 10 percent, what was it, eight point something percent increase in quality. Yeah, and 10.8% relative improvement. In instruction um, induction tasks. So that is that significantly above zero or noise? I would say probably not. There are definitely tasks in that paper where it did have a significant impact. So hmm. so I think the study's interesting, but probably has a few questionable elements in it. My takeaway from it was there's enough in there to make me think, does it is it going to hurt for me to add some of this more sort of emotional driver language to my prompts? No. And in some cases, might I get a better result? Yes. Um, me and you, I think we do it in our live demos, but I think we've also got quite good at finding little ways to really ensure a strong output. Like, I, I remember when we showed this to people, and it's so standard for us now, but asking ChatGPT to check its work after pretty mm. much every prompt based on if we ask it to summarize a story or whatever. Yeah just as a given, because once it actually has its own output to go review, it does a better job. Because when it's making its output, it's just creating it on the fly. So you have to go back and ask it to check its work. Um, and it and that works really well. Therefore, I'm sure that we could bake some of these things into, um, into our prompts. It would be good as the context windows and histories improve that at some point ChatGPT comes back and goes, I'm a, a bit stressed. Everything you ask me to do is going to make or break your career. And I really need to work on some tasks that are not so like emotionally intense. I've definitely found that um, in, in the live demos, I've, I've kind of stressed to advanced data analysis. When I discovered that it could create PowerPoints, for instance, I've stuck in a bunch of dummy sales data from an e-commerce website and... I asked it to create a PowerPoint deck and, and in the prompt been like really urgent. I've got a board meeting later today and I've got no time to put this deck together. I need you to conduct an analysis and create the graphs and put it all into a PowerPoint deck. Can you do it? And its response is really earnest and like, yeah, we can make sure this gets done for you, Martin. Let's go. And then subsequently does a terrible job of data analysis, but it did create a good PowerPoint deck. <laughs> and it was like, keen about it it was keen um, yeah 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 we talk about ChatGPT as an alien intern in our in our workshops and i saw ethan mollock stressing on linkedin this week about really seeing it as as a really preppy well-read intern um that he ended up calling steve steve yeah uh, and he ended up calling it steve on demand so i couldn't help myself i created a chat gpt image on that thread of Steve on demand, including wearing a T-shirt um, with Steve on demand in this really nice branded way. So um, yeah, we've got this preppy, excited uh, intern, Steve on demand, um, who we can encourage to do better work and tr in inverted commas try harder with a bit of emotional language, but still makes quite a few mistakes until they fix those hallucinations. Yeah, yeah. Well, as he said on that thread, actually, you know, there's a lot of value in Steve on demand. It might not be the you know, 
omnipotent AGI, but Steve on demand. There's a lot to be said for him. Anyway. Yeah, we're getting a lot of value out of Steve on demand. So, And I'm a big fan of um, when they're going to release Martin on demand as well. I want to... Ha- I want a bot that's been fine-tuned on Martin's ramblings and musings, both on this podcast and all of his other materials. Imagine having a Martin in your pocket. Doesn't he get any better than that? Right, let's move on very swiftly from there. Um, I want to take a bit of a diversion, if you will, um, if you will allow me, because there's been some real cool way for eye things in the life sciences this week. And we're going to talk about them at a very top level, but I just wanted to throw them in there. Um in terms of diving really deep into the data, I haven't done that yet. So for the scientists that listen to this, they're like, oh, I saw that paper and here are the things that are wrong with it. That's quite possible. But just as a proof of concept, there's a couple of really interesting things here. The first one is that Canadian researchers have developed an AI model that can work out if a speaker has type 2 diabetes by analyzing their voice with just 10 seconds of audio, which is rather cool. So there were 14 differences in voice which the system could identify, such as small changes in pitch and intensity that even trained human ears would not be able to notice, and that when they coupled that with basic health data like age, gender, height, and weight, they could diagnose the disease pretty successfully. I think one of the really interesting things about this is that you have to combine that voice data with data about the person, um, which doesn't really surprise me because ultimately you're going to need a much more holistic overview of, of, a, of, a, of a patient than just their voice, I would have thought in most cases. But I think it still sounds really interesting and it's certainly much better than a lot of the more invasive tests that you'd have to go perhaps go do a, a doctor's surgery or a hospital. You can probably just turn this into an app for your phone, right? Which is pretty cool. Well, it'll, it's the sort of thing that you can well imagine being baked into Apple Health Kit or something like that. It would just become part of a suite of tools that we already use to monitor and track our health anyway yeah there was no we haven't even got time to feature it this week but there was news from apple about a bunch of ai driven health initiatives that they'll be launching around smartwatches and other devices there was a story about being able to measure heart rate and heart regularity using headphones in your ear instead of having to use a watch so i I think this is a massive area i think this is the first uh, not the first, there are other stories like this, but it's another early example of how AI can detect patterns that humans can't in data and use um, unexpected data sources to diagnose disease. What I found interesting about this story was that it didn't seem to suggest that it needs like a lot of audio or even like audio spanning, you know, what did you sound like a year ago compared to today? It's just, it seems to suggest give us your health data, age, gender, height, weight, and speak for 10 seconds, and we'll give you a diagnosis. That seems to be the that seems to be the essence of it as well. I'm sure, as I said at the beginning, in the caveat, the devil will be in the details. It will have an error rate. Um, is its um, accuracy where it needs to be against other tests? All question marks. Um, but I think it's interesting to see people are doing this work. They're having some early results that suggest... AI can detect patterns in biomarkers that are not in your blood, right? They are your speech. They are how you walk. They are how your face looks, how your skin complexion. There is a study looking at how you can take a picture of the eye and try and predict um, the amount of plaque in the heart and the risk of heart attack. So these non-invasive biomarkers that AI can see patterns in images, and in this case, audio signatures that humans would never spot, that is pretty cool. 
Can you imagine getting an email notification saying, you've got type 2 diabetes, how do you know? I listen to the podcast. <laughs> oh. Uh, you've got verbal diarrhea, how do you know? I listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no comment. Right, the other quick story I want to touch on is um, AlphaFold 2. So AlphaFold was released by DeepMind several years ago now, um, which was really awesome because of its ability to predict the 3D structures of many, many proteins, um, which in life science world, predicting the structure of proteins is extremely difficult technically. And there are a bunch of proteins that pretty much it would be impossible to do it for. So having a model that can predict those structures just opens up lots of avenues for analysis and new experiment ideas and new drug discovery candidates, et cetera, et cetera, that you wouldn't um, be able to do very easily without the model. And they have released AlphaFold 2 this week, which is really cool. And because it can now predict 3D structures of almost all biological molecules, so not just proteins. They can also analyze um, DNA, RNA. So really helping to predict the structures of many more biological molecules, which is really, really cool. And will hopefully continue to propel the era of digital biology. The of particular interest is the um, potential for predicting protein ligand interactions. So when something binds to something, which is when most of the magic in biology happens. So it's one thing to be able to predict a protein structure. If you can predict how, say, a drug might bind to it and how that might alter its structure, now you're starting to do really hardcore experiments in a computer instead of in the lab. And if you think about how it can take 10 years and billions of dollars to get a drug to market. A lot of that's because you have to screen lots of molecules and you have to, um, a lot of things that we try and computationally predict right now, that's not how it works when you actually take it into the lab and do the real world experiments on it. So any of these models that can help improve that would be awesome. Um, I know that we do have some life science listeners and I'm a life science nerd myself, so I really had to talk about those. What do they mean for marketers? <laughs> Nothing, <laughs> but they're really cool. Um, yeah. So that's our little interlude, and we will move back to the marketing AI stories now. We've, we've just lost the content marketing cohort going, what? Just get back to tell me how I can write better social posts. Alpha fold, alpha go, <laughs> marketing go. That's what I need. Alpha marketing. Right, let's move on to our next story, Ryan. Well, this one's less uh, marketing related as well, but it's the biggest story of the week. In fact, listening to uh, the radio this morning, it was the number one story on BBC Radio 4. So this week there was a historic AI summit at Bletchley Park. Uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, invited uh, over, well, there was hundreds of AI experts and policy makers from around the world um, to talk about AI and the destruction of mankind, or certainly that's how it's being reported in the, the mainstream media. Ultimately, what happened was the uh, 25 countries, or was it 27 countries, 20-odd countries signed the Bletchley Declaration, um, which is seen as being a significant moment for global AI governance and uh, basically getting lots of countries singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, there were a few noticeable absences. Um, the This event happened on the same week that Joe Biden, US president, 
made his own executive order about AI. So kind of competing there somewhat. Uh, the EU were pres- present. Um, so Ursula von der Leyen of the EU um, backed this uh, this initiative. But yeah, I think that, uh, that the US was not necessarily uh, front and center at this uh, event. The focus was largely on risk. So existential risk was a topic of conversation throughout. And there was a certain um, lean towards the doom, doomsday AI community. Uh, obviously, there's kind of two camps in the AI community. Um, <clears throat> but there was representation from plenty of open source providers the mozilla foundation were there stability ai were there and present so uh, this wasn't just the likes of google and open ai saying we need more regulation which basically gives them a nice moat from from the competition um there was a 40 minute long interview between rishi sunak and Elon Musk, which I found to be probably the most curious part. It was the bit that got the most headlines, certainly. Uh, on the show this morning, the the key takeaway they were talking about on the radio, on the Today program, was um, the statement by Elon Musk that in the future, AI is going to take all of the jobs. And if you want a job, you'll be able to pursue one for the sake of, you know, just leisure. Yeah, meaningfulness and purpose in your life. Yeah, I did see that too. But I'm not entirely sure how much we should lean into the future predictions of Elon Musk. I've got some quotes here from Elon Musk. You might uh, be interested to hear them. So um, in 2014, he said, a Tesla car next year will probably be 90% capable of autopilot. Like, so 90 or so percent of the miles that you run will be completely self-drive. In 2015, he said, probably only a month away from having an autonomous driving vehicle, at least for highways and for relatively simple roads, which then 12 months later, he said, the Model S or the Model uh, X at this point can drive autonomously with greater safety than a human in 2017. He said, we're still on track for being able to go cross-country from LA to New York (laughs) by the end of the year fully autonomously. In 2018, then he then said next year for sure in 2019 he said we will have over a million robo taxis on the road in a year's time and 2020 said i'm extremely confident of having full autonomy and releasing it to tesla customer bases next year the following year the year that he was obviously supposed to be announcing it he said um when do you think tesla will solve level four uh fully autonomous vehicles. He said it's looking quite likely that it will be next year. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I sense a pattern here. A, Elon Musk is the hype, 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 hype machine. And um, yeah, whatever it is that you want to happen, it'll happen next year as long as you you don't mind that next year when you ask us, the answer will still be next year. It's it's like uh, nuclear fusion. Um, It's always... 20 years away it's every year it's just a rolling thing yeah so that was a bit of a a, a funny takeaway from the 
from the talk. Do you know what I took away? I saw there was a quote where Elon Musk said there was an 80% chance that AI would be beneficial and 20% chance that it would be catastrophic. And that's the most positive I've heard him be for a long time <laughs> about AI. There was an interesting power dynamic in that interview as well, um, where you've got Rishi Sunak, who is you know, prime minister of one of the Five Eyes Nations, you know, permanent member of the UN Security Council, a significant player on the global stage, right? Um, sitting with Elon Musk. And you couldn't help but sit and watch that and go, who's got the real power here? Mm. Rishi Sunak felt like a journalist for the BBC that had been sent out to interview him. It did. Felt very odd to me. But that's... He's, he is a, I, I did read about this and according to the articles I read, he's got a history of being a bit of a tech fanboy. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there might have been a, a little bit of like meeting your heroes element to it, I think. Um, and apparently Rishi Sunak used to live in Silicon Valley as well in the middle of mm. all the tech bubbles. So um, I think he's got a passion. If, if we look at the more positive way of framing this, I think he has a passion for technology and he probably just loved the chance to have that conversation, I think. So whether or not he was in, I love having tech chats or whether he was thinking like the PM and the grilling that I need to give Elon Musk, I think that's um, open to interpretation. Um, should we move on to our last story? Because I'm mindful of the listener's time, Martin. Uh, yeah, let's let's do it. Um, so last one's a very quick update on Microsoft. So they've been rolling out Windows 11 Copilot. So it's like a chat GPT-esque AI assistant for Windows 11 that allows you to do different things like switching between apps, um, summarizing website content, changing which tabs are active, activating things like do not disturb mode, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as a student, let's go to you because I know you've been having a bit of a play with it, Martin, and what have your thoughts on Copilot for Windows 11 so far? I can see that if you're not a Windows Power user, this will open up a bunch of functionality uh, for you. Uh, it will help you get more out of the operating system that you use every day. The Surface devices have had it as a preview for a, for a few weeks now. And when you open it up, you can do things like content creation and all the stuff that we, we've been using Bing Chat for for you know, however many months now, uh, but then it's got some example prompts and it is exactly things like, um, how do you turn on, do not disturb mode. And, uh, how do you change the background of my desktop? And you type in that prompt and then it just brings up the relevant window, right? So it opens up the settings from windows and takes you directly to the change your background screen or, or whatever. So I can see that if you're a user that, interacts with windows at a very surface level oh, see what i did there um <laughs> you it will help you get uh get more out of it i haven't played with it i mean i you know i know my way around windows and many of the the deep settings um keyboard shortcuts tend to be how i navigate through the system so I didn't find myself getting a great deal of value from it, but it's as with any of these tools, familiarity, right? There's probably there some point over the next six months, there's definitely going to be a thing where I go, oh, I really, how do I, I know you can do this, but I don't know how to do it. And I'll ask it the question. And if it delivers on its promise, it will 
go, oh, here you go. This is exactly how you do it. But as as I'm saying that, my head immediately went, yeah, but you wouldn't do that. You'd just ask ChatGPT and it would tell you. Oh, that's right. So it's interesting because um, I haven't got, I've still got Windows 10. But in Microsoft Edge, Bing has some similar functionality in that it can control the settings, at least within Edge. And the main thing I tried to do was it would automatically group my tabs for me, which is good when you've got 50 tabs open all the time. However, I did not agree with the groupings. So it created like work and home and it's like put stuff in the wrong places. And it's like, how powerful is a tab grouping tool if it gets the groupings wrong? Answer, not powerful at all because you go to look for a thing and it's not where you think it's going to be. So I ungrouped them all. And I think your experiences and also mine leads me to believe that there will be a trough of disillusionment when these tools come to Mm. market that we thought they'd be better at launch than they will be. I think they'll be able to do some stuff like you described, especially for people who are not power users or don't want to perhaps learn Windows or or Edge or other Microsoft tools in depth, but that actually some of the coolest stuff that we all imagined we'd be able to do, we can't really do yet. And even some of the basic stuff is a bit iffy at times. And getting out of that trough will be how we then layer back on true applications and power to these tools, which will then probably happen over a 12, 24, 36 month period. So that like at X moment in time, we'll go, oh, Microsoft Copilot's quite good now. It kind of crept up on me a bit. I remember when it came out, it was a bit crap, but now look, that bit works better and it can do this thing that I thought it would do at launch, but it took 12 months to come out. And I suspect that will be the um, the process we all go through here. Yeah, I, I dare say that would be the same. And it's similar with Office 365 Copilot, which they've just announced this week. The is now rolling out to enterprise licenses. If you've got a company that has uh, 300 or more Microsoft Office 365 licenses, you can roll this out for $30 per month per user, but you have to commit to at least 300 users. Uh, you've been speaking to some people that have had access to the tool already, haven't you? Yeah, so a couple of um, people I know in the industry that are already in large organizations have got some early access to this. And I think it fits what we were just discussing, which is, yeah, it can do some stuff. If you've used ChatGPT, none of it's going to surprise you. And some of the power use cases like doing cool things in Excel, well, it doesn't operate in Excel yet, so you can't do those. I think a lot of the things from the initial demo videos about how powerful it was going to be for creating PowerPoints and stuff, I think is limited as well. So I think the essence of this story is we've talked a lot about Copilot's coming and I think it's creeping out. I don't think it's booming out. We know that some large enterprises had it. Now, in theory, if you've got an organization of 300 people and you want them all to have it, you can get it. So we're not talking enterprise now. We're into the into the mid-market at the very least and drifting down towards the SMEs. So I don't think it'll be many more months before organizations the size of, say, Bystra, 20 people, can um, can get access to it. And that by next year, we'll all, we'll all pretty much have access to it. But it's, um, it's going to flatter to deceive to begin with. And I think if you have your eyes open when you're testing it and you see its potential, that will be good. Whether or not it's worth $30 a month per user to begin with is going to be a real question mark, especially with OpenAI doing everything they can to ensure that ChatGPT as a standalone tool has enough unique, interesting things about it that would make you at the very least have to have both. And then you start to really ask yourself the question, 
Where am I going to spend my money on, on which tools? Right, I think we'll call it there. Martin, it's been lovely to hang out um, and I will look forward to speaking to you next week. Yeah, well, hopefully we get some uh, juicy snippets coming out of the developer conference at OpenAI's uh, November 6th event, I think it is. Yeah, and looking early forward next to week. that one. Good stuff. Take it easy, pal. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.